All right, well, this morning we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, we, we started off the first Sunday of Advent. We looked at uh, creation in the beginning and Christ's role in creation. And then last week we looked at Genesis 3 in, in the fall and the whole reason for Christmas. And, and I read a quote from uh, Pastor John Piper who said that uh, before it is a celebration, Christmas is an indictment. It's an indictment saying we, that we are people who are in need of a Savior. Uh, and we, we looked at, at the fall and, and the results of the fall for us. And this morning we're going to look at what happens immediately after the fall in Scripture. Where, where does God go with this people that have turned away from Him? Uh, and, and as we saw last week, uh, we, we saw some of the grace of, of God on Adam and Eve where he expels them from the garden away from this uh, tree of life that was in the middle of the garden so that they would not live forever in this fallen state. Uh, and then we go on, and, and so we're going to run through this morning five covenants throughout Scripture. Uh, and so obviously I'm not going to be able to give these the treatment that, that maybe they deserve. Like we could spend a week probably or more on each of these. So this morning it's just, it's just going to kind of be a shotgun through each of them uh, as we prepare for and move towards Christmas as we get to uh, the time where the Savior is born. And so if you will turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, we'll read verses 31 through 34. This morning, if you'll stand with me as we honor the word of the Lord that he has given to us. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will, will remember their sin no more. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this great text that we have before us, that it shows your never-ending love for your people. May we experience that in a very real, real way, not just in this room this morning, but each and every day in our lives as we seek to follow after you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, we're going to get back to this text eventually, okay? So, so don't think that I just like read it and then set it aside. No, we're going to come back to it, but we are going to go uh, several other places before we get there. So this morning, we're talking about the covenant. And at its most, base, its most basic meaning uh, is that a covenant is an agreement between two people. A very common covenant that we have in our world today is that of a marriage, Okay, they say you're entering into a covenant of marriage. Um, now, it's not a contract, okay? Because a contract says, uh, I'm going to do certain things for you, and you're going to do certain things for me, and as long as we're in agreement, the contract binds. 
but at, at, at one point or another, we can end this contract if, if you choose to no longer do this list of things for me and if I choose to no longer do this, thing, this list of things for you. Now, that's the way much of our culture approaches marriage, right? It's, uh, now, you won't hear that on the wedding day. Right? Has anybody ever heard vows? Um, I promise to love and cherish you as long as you don't put on weight. And as long, right? as, long as you never burn the stakes. And, um, right? Like, you don't hear that. In fact, if you ever hear that at a wedding, uh, that would be a really good time to take the opportunity to ask, does anyone object? Yes, I object. Stop it. It's not the way this works, right? We say, uh, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Always praying, of course, for the better of the two, but committing ourselves that, that no matter what comes, I'm not walking out, I'm not leaving, I'm, I'm staying right here. It, a covenant, unlike a contract, is, uh, does not have an ending point to it. A covenant is for life. It's unconditional, or at least it should be. And so throughout Scripture, we see God making different covenants with people. Uh, and this morning, like I said, we're going to look at five of them. We're going to look at four that God made specifically with people in the Old Testament. Uh, and in fact, our whole Bible is arranged according to covenant. So another word for covenant is testament. So, so we have two big ones, namely the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and then, of course, the New Covenant or the New Testament. Um, the first thing we need to understand when it comes to God and making covenants with people is that the covenants are not dependent upon the behavior of the people. They're dependent upon the character of God. We see this right off the bat. So, so even the word where we get um, a key word here in the Old Testament is this word hesed. All right, this, this Hebrew word hesed, which, which means God's loving kindness. That's how it's translated in a lot of... Um, a lot of translations of scripture is, is loving kindness. The truth is, there's really not a good English word for this. We, we just, I read one guy who said that the best word he could come up with is loyalty. But even that kind of falls a little short because it doesn't grasp the depth of it. So I pulled a couple of definitions here. The first comes from Pastor Mark Driscoll. He wrote a book called Doctrine. just kind of a basic theology book a few years ago. And he said, he defines it this way. Uh, the consistent ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. So all those things are wrapped up in this one word of hesed in the Old Testament. And then as I've used this uh, resource the last couple of weeks, you're going to continue to hear from it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones this is how she describes this word. God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's this love that is the basis for God covenanting with his people. They are based on God's never ending love for their people. And God's covenants with his people are not conditional upon the behavior of the other party. And we'll see that as we go along. So we have five that we're going to look, look at this morning. The first one is God's covenant with Noah. That's the first time that we see this picture of God making a covenant. We see this in Genesis 6. Uh, and what we're, what we're told here, verses 11 and 12, says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw that the earth, and, or, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Now it goes on to say that every thought of mankind was only evil continually. That's the way Scripture describes the people of Noah's generation. They were only evil continually. And then if you remember, we have a but. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're told that Noah walked with God and that he was, the the way scripture describes him is that he was blameless in his generation. Not perfect, as we'll see in a minute. There's a story on on Noah's that when we're telling the story of Noah and the ark, we don't cover like the next part of the story because I guess it ruins like Noah's hero status. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that this morning. I'm going to kill his hero status. Which, in fact, if you remember uh, a couple weeks ago when I read the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible, she said the Bible is not uh, primarily a book of heroes, heroes, although it has some heroes in it. And then she says, but these people weren't really heroes because they didn't act like heroes. They, they did some really bad th- stuff, sometimes on purpose. Like they knew it was wrong and they said, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do this anyway. These are the people who are the founding fathers of the faith as we know it. And their lives were train wrecks. And God used them anyway. Used them in some pretty big ways. So we see that Noah lived in this world filled with wickedness. And yet we're told that he walked with God. That that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Not because of who he was, not because he was so great, but because God was so great that he chose Noah to sustain his people. And this is the promise given to Noah in in Genesis 6.18. God says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. This is God's plan to restore his people. So what happens? Uh, you know all about the flood. Uh, it rains for Noah. First of all, Noah spends about 120 years building this boat with his bare hands. It rains for 40 days and for 40 nights. And for a year, Noah and his family float around on this boat till they come to rest on a mountain. And when Noah and his family finally get off the boat, we're told that he builds an altar to God and he offers a burnt offering to God that was one of every clean animal and, and some of every clean bird. So he makes this, this pretty impressive sacrifice to God for rescuing his family. And then God makes another covenant with Noah and says that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. And he gives us the promise of the rainbow that reminds us that God uh, keeps his promises. And Noah responds to God's covenant by getting drunk and falling asleep naked in his tent. Okay, that's how Noah responds to this covenant of God. And uh, there's some really weird stuff that happens that I won't dive into because it would take longer to explain what all happens than, than it would. Just, just, uh, just say that Noah and his family are still messed up. And what we see is that Noah is a sinner in need of a savior. And that tells us that as great as Noah was, we need a greater Noah. Which leads us to God's next covenant with a guy named Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to this guy named Abram. And this is what he says, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now here's the thing. We don't know really much anything else about Abram at this point. This is kind of how we're introduced to him. And God says, hey, I want you to pack up and go. And we know that at this time, Abram is 75 years old, and he has no children of his own. And God says, hey, listen, I want you to pack up everything you own, and I want you to set out to a land. Now, there's some questions that follow that, right? Well, God, where am I going? Nah, don't worry about that. <laughs> you don't worry about the details. You just, you just obey, and I will show you where you're going. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, at this point, Abram has some questions, right? Because he says, uh, I'm old, and I believe the word he uses for his wife is, and she is well advanced in years, right? So he, he learns, you don't call your wife old, right? But she, she is, um, the, the, the days of childbearing have gone, right? Like that's long over. I don't have an offspring. And yet you're saying that, that, I'm gonna make, that you're going to make of me this great nation. And God says yes, and in fact... He shows up. Now, God doesn't work in our timing, by the way. He's, he's wholly unconcerned with your timing. Wholly, completely unconcerned with your schedule and how you think your life ought to work. Because God doesn't work immediately in the life of Noah. He waits 25 years. But in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, we have this image of God sealing this covenant with Noah. In Genesis 15, verses 17 through 18. We're told this, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So, so what God had just done or what, what God had just told Abraham to do is to take a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he commands uh, Abram, he says, I want you to cut these in half and lay, them, lay the pieces opposite one another with a path in between. So Abram does that. He falls asleep. And then he wakes up in the middle of the night. And he sees this smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between these pieces. And it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now this would have been a common practice of, of people making a covenant between one another. They would have made a sacrifice and, and cut animals in half and laid them apart. And then they would have walked through there together which was a symbol saying, if I break this covenant, may I be like these pieces of the animal. In other words, they took their words so seriously, their agreement so seriously, they said, if I am to break this, may, may I be cut in half, just like these animals are. Now what's interesting here is God does not have Abram walk through with him. God walks through. He says, if I don't keep my covenant, may I be just like these. The covenant is based on God's character alone. Now Abram responds to this by getting tired of waiting on God and taking matters into his own hands. Sleeping with his wife's maidservant and saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm old. Uh, my wife's old. This is not, God must have missed something. So I need to help God's plan along here. And Abram responds to this great promise of God by saying, I'm going to take things into my own hand and see if I can kind of prod the, 
um, the plan of God along. And if you're familiar with the story, that causes all kinds of problems from then on. See, even this, this great father of our faith, Abraham, a man who, who was regarded for his faith in God, was a sinner in need of a savior. And that tells us that we need a greater Abraham. Now, as, as we may know, God, of course, keeps his promise to Abraham, and he does have a son, Isaac, who then has a son named Jacob, who then has 12 sons. And through one of them, Joseph, Jacob and his family wind up in Egypt, being saved from a great drought. And the Bible tells us that they are in Egypt for 400 years, and eventually they grow, that family grows so large that Pharaoh becomes really concerned uh, about them and realizes that if, that if this nation of Hebrews ever decides to revolt, he's going to be in big trouble, so he enslaves them. And then there are 400 years until this guy named Moses comes along. You may remember that uh, Pharaoh at one point was so worried about the growth of the Hebrews that he orders every male child to be killed. Moses' mom fears God more than Pharaoh, so she hides him, puts him in a basket, sends him down the river, and he winds up in Pharaoh's household being raised as a son of Pharaoh. He learns that he's a Hebrew, and he's out one day as a grown man, and he sees a, an Egyptian soldier beating a Hebrew slave, and so he looks this way and that and, and kills the Egyptian with his bare hands, buries him in the sand and thinks he's gotten away with it until the next day he breaks up a fight between two Hebrews. And one of them says, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses realizes, realizes he's been found out and runs for his life, spends the next year, next 40 years of his life as a shepherd in the middle of a desert until God intervenes in his life. This is, what, this is what Exodus 3 tells us about this account of the burning bush where God speaks to Moses. It says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey." Now, after God had to convince both Moses and then he had to convince Pharaoh through some pretty awesome signs and wonders, Moses did, in fact, lead the people out of slavery and on their way to the promised land. And then here's the covenant that God makes with Moses, Exodus 19. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this, this covenant with Moses not only involves God's promise to deliver the people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but also the blessing of the law, which shows God's people how God wants them to live. But it becomes clear very quickly that humans can't keep 
this law. So God gives them the blessing of this sacrificial system, a way to cover their sins in the meantime until they sin again and then they cover their sins again. It shows the penalty and the ugliness of sin. And the people of God respond to this blessing of the law and the sacrificial system and God rescuing them out of the hand of uh, the Egyptians and, and saving them from the Egyptian army by parting the Red Sea. They respond by refusing to enter the promised land because the people were too big and scary. And Moses will later respond to this blessing. So, so the people, because they refused to trust God, were, were not allowed to enter the promised land. That entire generation died except for Joshua and Caleb. And Moses eventually responds by disobeying God's command to speak to the rock to provide water for the people. He gets angry at the people and strikes the rock. And because he disobeyed God, he's not able to enter the promised land either. See, Moses was a sinner in need of a Savior. We need a greater Moses. The last covenant in the Old Testament is this covenant with David. Once the Israelites reach the promised land and, and they, establish, uh, they establish themselves there. They start crying out, we want a king. See, the plan all along had been that God was their king. But they said, that's not good enough for us. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a physical king. So God finally relents and, and gives them Saul, who decides to take things into his own hands and he's removed from his place as king. God hand selects this shepherd boy named David to replace Saul. And it's to David that God gives this promise that he will always have a descendant on the throne. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, 13-16. Speaking of David, God says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but the rod of men or with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. You see what he just said there? Listen, uh, th this guy, this, this David, and all of his descendants, there will be times where they turn away from me. And when they turn away from me, I will discipline them. But I will never remove my loving kindness from them. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now David, of course, responds to God's faithfulness in his life by committing adultery with a lady named Bathsheba and then by having her husband uh, killed by sending him to the front of the army, uh, front of the battle lines and then telling the rest of the army to draw back, leaving him out there alone. That's how, God, that's how David responds to God's loving kindness in his life. And through David's son Solomon, who eventually turns away from God and worships other idols, and the sons of Solomon on down the line, kings who lead the people to turn away from God, the nation of Israel is later divided into the northern kingdom that's still called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel is eventually utterly destroyed. The southern kingdom is eventually exiled to Babylon. But the prophets told that one day the kingdom of David would be restored. In Isaiah 9-7, which we read earlier, it says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, David, as great as he was, was a sinner in need of a savior. Even as a man after God's own heart, he was still a man in need of a savior. We need a greater David. Enter the prophet Jeremiah who speaks of this new covenant. Look with me again at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. To this people in exile, this people who have seen their homeland destroyed and who are, who are aching for this, for this promise to be fulfilled where God said, promised David that you will, you will always have a ruler on your throne. And it seems like God had forgotten his word because things are not going according to what according to how people thought they would. This is the people to whom Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you notice how many times uh, the phrase declares the Lord is in there? He wants to make certain that Jeremiah's hearers and and us today understand that this is the word of the Lord. It is set in stone. See, here we have the promise of the Messiah, the one who will set things right. We also have that promise of the Holy Spirit coming that happened on the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell on the believers, came to dwell inside each of us who is a follower of Christ. And I love this promise that they won't have to rely on one another to teach them. He says, for they will all know me. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This is why we have no Baptist priests. It's why I don't have a confessional booth where you come and tell me all the stuff, that, all the ways that you messed up the last week and I pray to God on your behalf because as Baptists we have an understanding called the priesthood of the believer which, which means whether you're a pastor or a preschooler you have the exact same access to God. Amen. See the prophets foretold of this greater Noah, this greater Abram, this greater Moses, this greater David. And, and the book of Hebrews goes through and systematically shows us how Jesus is greater than each of these. In Hebrews chapter 9, this is, this is how the writer explains this. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Listen to this. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What he just said there is that Christ didn't have to go in and make sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. That allowed him to be our perfect sacrifice. Verse 13, for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The old covenant was never meant to purify sins. It was meant to cover them, and it was meant to show men and women, boys and girls, that they were in need of a Savior, that they couldn't follow the law on their own. They were in need of a Savior. And so Jesus ushers in this new covenant, opening up God's family to all people, Jews and Gentiles. It's based on God's faithfulness, just like God's covenants always have been. It's based on His loving kindness, His faithfulness, not on anything you and I have done. Romans 3.10 reminds us, none is righteous, no, not even one. So, so then, what do we do with all this? What, we, we just walked through several covenants and, and talked about sprinkling of blood and, and these guys whose lives were messed up. And, and so what do we do with all this? What's, what's the key for us? We're told in Genesis 15.6, after God makes this covenant with Abraham, tells him, listen, you will have a son. You will be made into a great nation. We're given this simple verse in Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abram, believed God. And he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Now what's interesting to note is this statement happens 400 years before the law is given. See, the Pharisees thought they could gain righteousness by living right. By, by, by keeping the law so well that God would see them as righteous. And Paul, in, in his letters to the Romans and Galatians, goes to great lengths to point out that this promise happens 400 years before the law is even given. Where God spoke to Abram and said, listen, this is what I'm going to do. And yeah, you're right, it seems crazy, and it seems like it's not possible, but this is what I'm going to do. And Abram believed God. Hebrews 11.6, the writer of that book tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The key to experiencing the loving kindness of God is faith. Now James goes to great lengths to explain how our faith works itself out and what that looks like in our lives. And so you can't say, well, okay, I believe God, I'm in, I'm good, and now it doesn't matter how I live. No, that's not what it means. But listen, it's so simple it almost seems laughable. Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And because Abram believed God, even though his life didn't always look like he believed God, he placed his faith in God, which led to God making out of him a great nation. Which led to a guy by the name of Moses having faith in God and obeying God to lead God's people out of Egypt. Which led to a guy named David who would lead God's 
people in as, as their king. And who believed God when, when he said that you will always have a descendant on your throne. Which led to Christ Jesus who paid for your sins and my sins on the cross. This Christmas season, will you have the faith to believe the promise of God that eternal life is available beginning right now? And that regardless of what's happening in your life, regardless of what the circumstances may look like, one of the, one of the biggest things I've gained from our study of experiencing God on Sunday nights is when Henry Blackaby said, don't don't base your conclusions about who God is in the middle of your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances dictate your understanding of who God is. As you start reading in the Old Testament, there are tons of people whose circumstances were far from ideal, whose lives were train wrecks, but whom God selected to carry his promises along and who had the faith to believe him. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Maybe today you need to do that for the first time and say, just like Haley and Bailey have done, say, I want Christ to be my Savior. Maybe this morning you've been a believer for a long time and you say, I need to to renew my faith. I I need to trust God in the middle of maybe what are some less than ideal circumstances. I'm going to pray and then Sarah's going to come up and and, and lead us in a time of response. As always, I'll be down front. And Chuck will be down front. If you'd like to come and have one of us pray over you, please do so. You move as the Lord's leading you. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the story of the Bible, which makes clear that men and women are not the heroes, that men and women are not the point of the story, that you alone are the hero. And it's because of your goodness and your graciousness and your faithfulness and your character that we can trust you. So even on, on the days when it seems like our world is falling apart, will you remind us that we can trust you? May that faith cause us to be in the scriptures, to see the examples of those who've gone before. Those who trusted you at times and those who didn't trust you at times. May that solidify our faith in you and and our understanding that just because we sometimes have junk in our lives, that doesn't disqualify us from being used by you in mighty ways. Above all, we thank you for Christ Jesus who paid our penalty on the cross so that we could experience real, joyful, eternal life beginning here and now. Will you move in the next few moments? We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.